Chapter Two of Little Masterpieces of American Wit and Humor, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean Vaughan. Little Masterpieces of American Wit and Humor, Volume One, edited by Thomas Lansing Masson. Wilhelmus Kieft by Washington Irving. As some sleek ox, sunk in the rich repose of a clover field, dozing and chewing the cud, will bear repeated blows before it raises itself, so the province of New Netherlands, having waxed fat under the drowsy reign of the doubter, needed cuffs and kicks to rouse it into action. The reader will now witness the manner in which a peaceful community advances toward a state of war, which is apt to be like the approach of a horse through a drum, with much prancing and little progress, and too often with the wrong end foremost. Wilhelmus Kieft, who in 1634 ascended the gubernatorial chair, to borrow a favourite, though clumsy, appellation of modern phraseologists, was of a lofty descent, his father being inspector of windmills in the ancient town of Sardom, and our hero, we are told, when a boy, made very curious investigations into the nature and operation of these machines, which was one reason why he afterward came to be so ingenious a governor. His name, according to the most authentic etymologists, was a corruption of Kiver, that is to say, a wrangler or scolder, and expressed the characteristic of his family, which, for nearly two centuries, have kept the windy town of Sardom in hot water and produced more tartars and brimstones than any ten families in the place, and so truly did he inherit this family peculiarity, that he had not been a year in the government of the province before he was universally denominated William the Testy. His appearance answered to his name, he was a brisk, wiry, waspish little old gentleman, such a one as may now and then be seen stumping about our city in a broad-skirted coat with huge buttons, a cocked hat stuck on the back of his head, and a cane as high as his chin. His face was broad, but his features were sharp, his cheeks were scorched into a dusky red by two fiery little grey eyes, his nose turned up, and the corners of his mouth turned down, pretty much like the muzzle of an irritable pug-dog. I have heard it observed by a profound adept in human physiology that if a woman waxes fat with the progress of years, her tenure of life is somewhat precarious, but if happily she withers as she grows old, she lives forever. Such promised to be the case with William the Testy, who grew tough in proportion as he dried. He had withered, in fact, not through the process of years, but through the tropical fervour of his soul, which burns like a vehement rushlight in his bosom, inciting him to incessant broils and bickerings. Ancient tradition speaks much of his learning, and of the gallant inroads he had made into the dead languages, in which he had made captive a host of Greek nouns and Latin verbs, and brought off rich booty in ancient sores and apothems, which he was wont to parade in his public harangues, as a triumphant general of yore his spolia opima. Of metaphysics he knew enough to confound all hearers and himself into the bargain. In logic he knew the whole family of syllogisms and dilemmas, and was so proud of his skill that he never suffered even a self-evident fact to pass unargued. It was observed, however, that he seldom got into an argument without getting into a perplexity, and then into a passion with his adversary for not being convinced gratis. He had, moreover, skirmished smartly on the frontiers of several of the sciences, was fond of experimental philosophy, and prided himself upon inventions of all kinds. His abode, which he had fixed at a bowery or country seat, at a short distance from the city, just at what is now called Dutch Street, soon abounded with proofs of his ingenuity. Patent smoke-jacks required a horse to work them, 
Dutch ovens that roasted meat without fire, carts that went before the horses, weathercocks that turned against the wind, and other wrong-headed contrivances that astonished and confounded all beholders. The house, too, was beset with paralytic cats and dogs, the subjects of his experimental philosophy, and the yelling and yelping of the latter unhappy victims of science, while aiding in the pursuit of knowledge, soon gained for the place the name of Dog's Misery, by which it continues to be known even at the present day. It is in knowledge as in swimming. He who flounders and splashes on the surface makes more noise and attracts more attention than the pearl diver who quietly dives in quests of treasure to the bottom. The vast acquirements of the new governor were the theme of marvel among the simple burghers of New Amsterdam. He figured about the place as learned a man as a bond at Pekin, who had mastered one half of the Chinese alphabet and was unanimously pronounced a universal genius. Thus ends the authenticated chronicles of the reign of William the Testy, for henceforth, in the troubles, perplexities, and confusion of the times, he seems to have been totally overlooked and to have slipped forever through the fingers of scrupulous history. It is true that certain of the early provincial poets, of whom there were great numbers in the New Netherlands, taking advantage of his mysterious exit, have fabled that, like Romulus, he was translated to the skies, and forms a very fiery little star somewhere on the left core of the crab, while others, equally fanciful, declared that he had experienced a fate similar to that of the good King Arthur, who, we are assured by ancient bards, was carried away to the delicious abodes of Fairyland, where he still exists in pristine worth and vigour, and will one day or another return to restore the gallantry, the honour, and the immaculate probity which prevailed in the glorious days of the round table. All these, however, are but pleasing fantasies, the cobweb visions of these dreaming varlets, the poets, to which I would not have my judicious readers attach any credibility. Neither am I disposed to credit an ancient and rather apocryphal historian, who asserts that the ingenious Wilhelmus was annihilated by the blowing down of one of his windmills, nor a writer of latter times who affirms that he fell a victim to an experiment in natural history, having the misfortune to break his neck from a garret window of the Stadthouse in attempting to catch swallows by sprinkling salt upon their tails. Still less do I put my faith in the tradition that he perished at sea in conveying home to Holland a treasure of golden ore, discovered somewhere among the haunted regions of the Catskill Mountains. The most probable account declares that, what with the constant troubles on his frontiers, the incessant schemings and projects going on in his own perigranium, the memorials, petitions, remonstrances, and sage pieces of advice of respectable meetings of the sovereign people, and the refractory disposition of his counsellors, who were sure to differ from him on every point, and uniformly to be in the wrong. His mind was kept in a furnace heat until he became as completely burnt out as a Dutch family pipe which has passed through three generations of hard smokers. In this manner did he undergo a kind of animal combustion, consuming away like a farthing rushlight, so that when grim death finally snuffed him out, there was scarce left enough of him to bury. End of Wilhelmus Kieft's